Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 985. This week on the show, Ben Clemens and Eric Longenhagen get together to talk about the trade value series that Ben wrote this week, as well as the trade deadline that is coming up next week. We hear about Eric's trip to Los Angeles and seeing the All-Star Game and Futures Game, as well as Bad Bunny being just about everywhere. Meanwhile, Ben shares what it was like to do the trade value series on his own for the first time, and the duo discuss how difficult the apples and oranges of these rankings can be. We also hear about an assortment of subjects ahead of the trade deadline, like O'Neal Cruz's wide range of possible outcomes, Sandy Alcantara having mediocre fastball shape but growing into outstanding control, Cattell Marte getting too strong for his own hamstrings, how modern Shane Bieber looks compared to his results, Mookie Betts' weird contract, and one of Ben's favorite parts of this year's trade value list. I think my favorite, like, confusing ranking of the whole thing is Shohei Otani and Alejandro Kirk right next to each other. And I don't think there are two more different players on this list. Otani is, like, a model. And Alejandro Kirk is, like, if you squished Shohei Otani down by eight inches. More than yeah. eight inches? More than eight inches. Like, a foot, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. He's, he's not very tall. Yeah, Kirk is interesting he's awesome as the guy who probably talks about long-term body composition and the projection that it has and what it does to the way i think about guys like i somehow i'm often the one who's just like this guy hits i don't care (laughs) stuff in this guy yeah and kirk was that was that dude for me too but before we get to this conversation i must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the fangraphs.com shop not only is it the best place to get your fangraphs merch but you can also scoop an ad-free membership, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. It is truly the best way to both browse the site and to support the site, helping us to keep doing everything we do at Fangraphs. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hi, welcome back. Or perhaps not, we're recording this in a vacuum. I am Ben Clemens, and I'm joined by Eric Longenhagen. And Eric, we can still breathe in here, but other than that, uh, it's pretty nice. Yeah, we are, in certain ways, we are in a giant vacuum. <laughs> I don't know how those, how the James Webb pictures made you think and feel about stuff, but hey, it's a big vacuum. My dad, uh, my dad is just sending me those nonstop. They're pretty cool. It's they nice that cool. uh, he's doing it instead of me, because otherwise I would just look at it all the time and not have time to work. But he kind of gives me the, like, the coolest ones. He's retired, so he's got plenty of time, too. Yeah, is there a central location where they're all visible, like the MTG spoilers, where you're just like, <laughs> you want to see every every card that we've got in the next set? Well, here's the, here they are. Most of what I've been funneled of the, the web stuff is what's been, you know, passed around on social media via text and different stuff. Dude, have you seen next month's Nebula release? It's wild. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe they reprinted the Milky Way. <laughs> Well, speaking of uh, speaking of stars, you just went to the All Star Game. Yeah, that's uh, that's professional segueing there, and uh, and it's accompanying festivities, which is now just a big baseball fest. It's got the draft, high school All Star Game, which I wasn't really aware was a thing, but sure, you know they're All Stars too, in my mind at least. Uh, Futures Game. I guess you didn't go to the Home Run Derby, but other than that, it sounds like it was a pretty fun time. I did not do the Derby in person, but yeah, I did. Team USA has. High school all-stars for the 2023 draft class. That is a fairly recent feature. And they will play a game at the big league stadium, wherever the all-star game is on the Friday before. That, I think, was like... You could probably find the stream for that on MLB.com still if you wanted to. And then Saturday was Futures game. 
seven innings, seven innings of mostly me and people there to see Bad Bunny <laughs> play softball. And do you think he sleeps? Like he's just at every event. He's got to be just in transit whenever he's not at an event. I don't know. I like him. He seems like a nice guy and he's funny. And the music that I've heard of his is like, I enjoy listening to. I don't roll my eyes when it comes on. Like I do the chicken fry song at, you know, baseball (laughs) game. And it was just, I just did not realize how significant he is to our culture uh like i was totally blown away when they announced him or showed someone like wearing a custom dodgers bad bunny jersey just a dude in the crowd during the futures game on the jumbotron (laughs) with and like the place exploded and i had just had no idea so i don't really know what he's up to but he seems to be doing very well for himself and the futures game was okay and then the draft was a huge like a lot of fun it was funny it was outdoors which was probably smart But also, like, it was hot for L.A. I was fine with it because it wasn't 114 like it was in Arizona. I was going to say hot for L.A., so that's, like, winter for you? It was was in the low 90s. Oh, that is pretty hot. And for the first couple hours of sitting there, like, for the draft, we were all kind of baking. There was a certain media area that was covered, and then the one that I ended up with, Meg ended up with and like a couple other Zach Buchanan and uh, Jake Mintz and Jordan Schusterman. A bunch of us were just in a row that was exposed for a little while, but like whatever, it was fine. And then obviously that was a huge rush. That draft first night of the draft always rockets past just because of all the adrenaline. And then things like started to chill out. Day two of the draft was like super chill and went fast. Uh, they were done with day two of the draft within like I think inside three hours maybe so what do you do when you're at these there's just like a stage presumably and people go up so, there to announce picks yeah so this was actually the first draft i've ever been to when they used to do them in secaucus every year and i was still living in pennsylvania there were a few times when i applied to go when i was writing for Crashburn alley or you know small independent blog i was not freelancing for espn at this time i had not even done my little you know, jaunt at sports on earth, rest in peace at this time yet, still before 2014. And Major League Baseball was like, nah, you can't come. <laughs> well, pass. Then since they've been doing it like last year, because I walked back from the Futures game, got a to-go meal, and then like sat in the hotel while the first night of the draft unfolded. Uh, this was the first year I was actually there. So there was just like a picnic table with a nice tablecloth and outlets for you to plug into and the fans were sitting right in front of me i was like between the mlb network set down beneath them such that you could not see me on tv i was like at like you know if i turned right around i was looking at the small of jonathan mayo's back you know from 20 feet away so don't take this the wrong way but who are fans going to the mlb draft that like like, I totally get it as, like, a baseball nut or, like, us covering it, but it does not feel like a fan event to me. It was it was pretty cool. People were stoked to be there. They definitely pulled people in. Like, there were people like, hey, you've won a trip to the, to the MLB draft or, you know, do you want to <laughs> go to the, you know, there were people that they pulled in there from out of nowhere, I assume, who didn't know who all but 
two of the players were probably before they arrived. But they people had a great time. Some of their lack of context for it was evident in the lack of Rob Manfred booing, which, you know, the commissioner getting booed at a draft is... Yeah, it's classic. That's, it's, that's like yeah. an important part of any draft, regardless of how much people like the commissioner. Like Adam Silver gets booed. Right. The people who were booing him were people outside of the enclosure that like held the draft. So those people were were nuts enough to be there to try to watch the draft from outside of this little probably 250 person, you know, just seats from a conference center somewhere lined up and then zip tied together. <laughs> but they they were getting lots of free stuff. All the young kids who were there at the draft left with like just armfuls of stuff. And people were charmed by Tamar Johnson and a lot of the ex-big leaguers who announced the picks in subsequent rounds. So I think that people people seem to have a good time. And I thought that they did a good job, they being whoever put this on for Major League Baseball, whoever was in charge of like making this entertaining in the room, seemed to do a good job. My nose was often either in my phone or in a spreadsheet through most of the first night of the draft. Yeah. It wasn't until the very end when things sort of settled down and I got to like sit and watch and appreciate how cool the LED video board with the team logos looks in person and all that kind of and all that kind of stuff, but it was mostly me texting people in the draft rooms, chatting with readers on the site and trying to update the board as quickly as possible to make it easy to move all the drafted prospects onto the pro side of the board, which is already done. So I'm going to ask an important question about this. I paid attention to all those things, and that makes a lot of sense. It seems like there's a lot of work to be done there and like updating the picks as they happen. Would that board be better used to show pictures of the James Webb Space Telescope? <laughs> yes. Oh, God, yeah. Like To see 50, 60 feet across some of that imagery. Yeah, I think we should, uh, we should get into a new business line, which is just uh, taking things that are used for baseball and telling them, this is like, you should just be showing pictures of space. Space is crazy. But yeah, we we did the draft, and then Home Run Derby was its own thing with Julio and Juan Soto. But I I wasn't there for any of that. I was watching on TV. But then, but I had to go to the All Star game, and this was my first All Star game in person as well. Just because I'm typically for these All Star weekend things, like I do the Futures game, and yeah. I'm in and out, and that's basically it. But this one felt like no, I want to see Pujols, I want to see Cabrera, I want to see Kershaw pitch in Dodger Stadium and All Star game and all that stuff. Yeah, I think seeing Kershaw starting at Dodger Stadium, like for the last time, obviously in an All Star game, is pretty cool. Like I would have, I would have gone for that for sure. And then next year is Seattle, and Philly is in a couple years, and so looking forward to that stuff. Well, Philly will be a uh, will be great. You can go back to your old stomping grounds, and uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't really know what uh, what gets done in Philadelphia. Drink some beers. Yeah, hopefully we get to have there are enough fan graphs people within driving distance of Philly that we should have more than just. A couple folks there. All right. So after that, now it's trade deadline time. My focus has shifted from draft stuff to 2023 draft stuff and trade deadline prep, which for me means 40-man crunch piece, considering the contenders farm systems, since they're the ones most likely to move prospects. And then for you, it's been working on trade value stuff. So when did when did the trade deadline or the trade value stuff process begin for you? What is the early part of your list making procedure like when you have to dive into doing this piece every year now this is the first year i've done it on my own and so i'm kind of making it up last year's procedure was that i would just figure out 
when I could call Kevin and then we would like argue a lot, a little bit and each make our own lists and be like, no, you suck. And he'd be like, no, you suck. And we'd be like, actually, both these lists are pretty good. Cool. <laughs> so that, that was much easier actually. And uh, having someone to bounce ideas off of worked really well. So our process was very slow last year. This year I started like kind of early and my first order of business was just to gather a ton of data. So I made Dan give me like five year zips for basically any baseball player I can name. And I pulled a bunch of projections from other places. I like used some StatCast data that I regressed a little bit. I pulled a bunch of different contract data and tried to estimate future ARB payouts. And I created like this big grid of kind of everyone in baseball who's not going to be a free agent after this year, who I don't know, basically like has played this year and ranked them all and then started just iterating from there. You and, you know, all the Fangraph staff really helped out a lot by looking at my list and being like, hey, this is stupid. And those are pretty inevitable when there's just so many players. Like, it's just really hard to to consider 50 things separately in your head all at the same time. And I imagine you have the same problem on the on the top 100 list where, like, you're just bound to forget someone or, like, something will be logically inconsistent because you were ranking 1 through 20 and then you are ranking 21 through 40 but actually 37 looks kind of like 19 or like actually 45 and 33 are basically the same. So like if I can swap those, then what about 44 and 32? And there's just like a lot of that that goes on. So one thing that I did that I thought was kind of useful, this was like July 1st, maybe was I made a list and then I hid it for myself for like a week. I went on vacation and then I came back and I made another list and I compared the two and they were like, pretty similar but there were there were enough differences that that kind of sharpened up my feelings on people and then i just started asking some people we know on teams and asking some people i know who use like i i talked to uh craig edwards who works for the union i maybe maybe we have to cut this part i don't know i think i think it's fine i just said hey craig look at the list does anything uh jump out to you because he's done this before and he has kind of a useful context for it yeah i just did a lot of that and as time went on, I just, you know, cleaned it up more and more and more. And by the time it was about time to go, I felt pretty good about it. I'm still making changes. Like I just made a change today for uh, today's Tuesday for Wednesdays, 30 through 21 or 21 through 30 or whatever you want to call it. Uh, kind of a lazy change because I wanted to write about Alec Manoa and Shane McClanahan on the same day, but I had them. 21st and 20th so they're going to be split between days and i was like well that that's stupid i want i want to compare them so i, I moved them both up a spot uh, some inside baseball for you there yeah it's interesting to look at and see obviously i'm going to be inclined to have my thoughts on these guys from when they were prospects be part of a jumping off point yeah for my like frame of reference for what freddie peralta has become and what logan webb has become and like I was on the relief side of McClanahan and like KG liked Manoa way more than I did. And he has turned out to be right about that, et cetera, et cetera. Like some of that stuff tends to happen. Yeah. I think uh, McClanahan Manoa is a very interesting one because like you said, like you could, you could imagine the, the prospect pedigree side being down on both of them, but also being up on both of them, right? Like they were just kind of divisive. Right. And you, sometimes pitching, it just does what it does. And these guys get hurt or they their stuff isn't as crisp all of a sudden. I would not have guessed Ian Anderson would be struggling for right. stretches. I would not have guessed, you know, that 
Trevor Rogers would have regressed quite this hard. So like there are instances where skepticism about someone, even though they perform initially, turns out to be founded. And like, yeah, would it surprise me if Manoa three years from now physically is so big that like he's lost some marginal amount of athleticism, but it's meaningful enough that his stuff isn't as dominant? Like, no, that wouldn't surprise me at all. But he sure as hell looks good right now. And the same is true of McClanahan. And both these guys were, hey, is there a relief risk got here type dudes at one point? And you know, emphatically, no. Yeah. <laughs> Corbin I mean, Burns was like that for a while in the big leagues, too. I mean, he was just a reliever in the big leagues for a while and a bad one. So, like, the way – who knows how words are formed, but that's, yeah. you know, what's happening with a lot of the pitching here is the path that a lot of these guys have taken is circuitous in a way. And even for the ones who have taken a more direct path to dominance, it is not necessarily – they are not necessarily going to live there forever, but these hitters, which it's, you know, you have hitters stacked from one to 10. Sandy Alcantara is 10th. Yeah. One of three pitchers in the top 20 and the other two are 19 and 20. <laughs> so let's talk about Sandy. Fastball shape and Sandy Alcantara. Yeah, it's not great. It's not great, but he's incredible. So Why? I think that he's done a really good job of figuring out a way to pitch that doesn't need the, like, super top-of-the-zone fastball shape. You know what I mean? Like, he's—what he's decided to work around is, like, feature his changeup more and use his slider a lot and, like, use his fastball more as, like, almost a setup pitch and not a just bat-missing monster. And it, it's not, right? It It's technically a four-seamer, I believe, but— I mean, it's not like a 12-6 or like a not 12-6, but whatever you'd call it, like a vertical mainly fastball. It's more of a horizontally stretching, like the way he throws it from his arm slot gives it some tail and he uses it that way. I think a lot of what's great about Sandy is just that, man, he has really good command and that kind of came out of nowhere. You know, I remember him as a Cardinals prospect still, and th this was certainly not what you'd expect out of him. Like he's a hard thrower, but more of a like hard thrower who you wondered if he would figure out how to harness the stuff because he was just like, you know, he ran some pretty high walk rates for meaningful amounts of time in the minors and even in the majors. Like his first season in Miami, he was walking 10% uh, of batters for, for a whole season. It just seems like this happens with pitchers. Like you were saying, like sometimes guys' stuff takes a step back, sometimes it takes a step forward. And he just seems to have figured out like how to use the stuff and how to be consistent. If there's one thing that, I'm most impressed by with him. It's just consistency. And that's really valuable if you're looking to go deep into games because he doesn't, doesn't seem like he gets out of his motion ever. And it doesn't seem like he misses his spots too much. And yeah, like he, he can get hit. Like it's not that he has just absolutely unbelievable strikeout stuff. People put the ball in play, but he just, he's a workhorse. He doesn't, he doesn't throw a lot of just like terrible, like non-executed pitches He's very consistent. He's strong. He goes deep into games. It's an interesting skill set for, you know, quote unquote, the best, the highest trade value pitcher in baseball. You'd think of those guys more as the Jacob DeGrom type, right? Like strikes everyone out. And like, that's not really him, but the combination of like, he's really good. He might win the Cy Young this year. And he's also under team control for forever, for basically no money. Cause he signed an extension when he was more of a speculative kind of deal than a, right. than a bona fide star. And he's going on. Like, 
So when he was a prospect last, it was 2019, he was a 50 for me. He was towards the very back of the overall list. And the TLDR from his prospect days is on, it's just on his player page now. It just says, more likely that Alcantara, who has elite arm strength, will end up as a dominant two-pitch reliever due to issues with his command and breaking ball efficacy. I've got you know, average to above grades on his curveball and slider at the time and projected a plus changeup, which turned out to be right. But 40, 45 command has not been right. And so, but that's what he was like. That's it's what he was. But the, but what are the reasons to say to look at Sandy Alcantara when he's 23 and say, this guy's going to have seven command? Right. And it's look at his body, look how elegant and balanced his delivery is, how fluid and athletic he is. Like these are the things that over time you you know they tend to be the things that are the traits present in these guys who have this type of late blooming elite command. Yeah. Burns I think is um I mean he's not the same body type, but if I were looking at that I would I would think similar things where like it, it just seemed like something about the pitches he was using and like the way he was pitching was leading to worse command. And when he cleaned up his grips and cleaned up everything and started repeating more, his command also took huge leaps forward. I think one thing though I've picked up from you is like athleticism is a good marker for developing command later. And if you, you look at those guys and you're just like, that looks very fine and natural and athletic. I'm like, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt more on developing command later. Right. Like Spencer Strider, when you watch how easy it is, you're like, oh, wow, this is, you know, sure, this guy's you figure, has a chance to figure out more stuff. Right. But in some of the chats I've done recently, there is like a contingent of our commentariat that's like, they're all athletic. They're athletes. And it's like, no, your visual palette needs refining. Well, if you I just mean, look at a guy and it looks like he's throwing a baseball, you're not looking at it right. They are all athletes. That's, I think that's true. But I think people are using too broad of a definition of athletic. Like, I think you're talking about, you know, like Leo Messi kind of athleticism, right? Like, just looks very, like their motions are just incredibly coordinated. And like, it just looks like every part is connected to the other part very smoothly. Like, Giancarlo Stanton, athlete. There's no questioning that. But right. I mean, Stiff. his athleticism is in its explosion, not in its smoothness. Correct. It is. Yeah. There's a huge difference between run fast, jump high, strength. Like these are aspects of someone's physical ability. But athleticism to me is like JP Crawford is athletic. I was going to say Mookie Betts. Do you think he's the most athletic player in this sense in the majors? Yeah. Like he, he's, if he's not the most, he's certainly one of the most body control, gracefulness, a certain like elegance and flair. Yeah. Mike Trout has run fast, jump high athleticism. He's explosive. JP Crawford is balletic. He is athletic. Yeah. Like my wife is like a baseball fan, but not a big baseball fan. And she, we watch a decent amount of Dodgers games because those are the late games that are on here. And every time Mookie's up, she's just like, he's the most coordinated person I've ever seen. And yeah, like, probably. Yeah. That catch he made to end the game a few nights ago in the right field corner where he, his ribs or whatever he's got going on, he's got something going on where he's not comfortable. Yeah. The fact that he can make that catch and also land in a way that spares his ribs is amazing. 
Yeah. And then, yeah, like Ketel Marte, I've watched blow right through, go from like light hitting glove oriented shortstop to, wow, look how big and strong this guy is to, oh, his hamstrings look like they're about to explode. He's so tight. He constantly has hamstring issues because of how big and strong and muscular he is. He's so tight in his lower half now that he just is a threat to pull his hamstring anytime he runs as hard as he can to first base. And yeah. just the way some of these guys are going to develop in that way is 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 hard to assess. Yeah, that's one um that's one really interesting thing about doing these rankings, I think, is how much do you weight like the present? Because the future is inherently unknowable, blah, blah, blah. Like that's obviously true, but it really does come into play in these. Like Adley Rutschman is not the best catcher in baseball right now. I think that's that's not controversial. But he might be soon. And so how much do you want to balance the fact that he'll be there for forever and likely to develop against the fact that, like, okay, someone who's two spots ahead of him in the final rankings, Kyle Tucker. And Kyle Tucker is really good right now. And, like, yeah, he'll probably be pretty good for years to come, but he won't be under team control as long. And, you know, there's, there's lots of reasons to like him less than Rutschman. But, hey, right now, Kyle Tucker's great. And because so much of his value is concentrated in the present and, like, the next two years— you have to do less forecasting. And I think that is uh, kind of balancing that because there is a lot of like forecasting going on in all this and being able to get a bunch out of somebody right now is pretty useful and saves you having to figure this out. Like, yeah, figuring out whether Cattell Marte is going to get too strong. That, uh, that sounds hard. I don't think I'd be very good at projecting that. Yeah. So who are some of the guys on this list who the feedback that you got was in conflict with one another who were some of the individuals who some folks thought were too high but others thought maybe were too low so what's driving that difference i think one of my favorites is soto and i think this one's kind of straightforward i in the final ranking soto is sixth and that is i think pretty pushed and it reflects the fact that if a team trades for soto soon they'll be trading for him because they think they can extend him i think that's basically unquestionable like you don't trade for Juan Soto right now if you don't want to lock him into your lineup for 20 years or whatever and that's really valuable it's very hard to develop a player like Juan Soto like the number of teams have done it in the past 10 years is I don't know three four it's low there's not there's not a lot of guys like that and so I understand that you know you'll have to pay him near market rate or whatever but being able to put that into your lineup for a team like I mean, how many teams are there now that are pretty good at developing average to above average players and have real budgets? There's a bunch, you know, the, I guess I wouldn't necessarily say the Red Sox are good at developing average players, but like the Yankees, the Cardinals, the Padres are, seem to be pretty good at it. The Dodgers, the Giants, blah, blah, blah. Like there's a lot of teams that are pretty good at getting you two win players or whatever uh, from their farm systems and also have real budgets. Give those guys, any of those teams, the head start of having Juan Soto in the lineup. And they can mostly afford him because, I don't know, he's not signing a $70 million a year contract or anything, is really valuable. Some people looked at the list, team side, public side, whatever, and said, are you kidding? Like, count up the surplus value. Why Why is Juan Soto in the top 10? Why is he in the top 20? And I don't, I don't think that tracks with how players get traded for each other. Like, neither Trey Turner nor Max Scherzer came anywhere near the list last year because they just didn't have enough time until free agency. And they got traded for two pretty good prospects who look pretty good in the majors. And like stars just command premiums. And so one person I talked to said, like, maybe you should just put Soto in the top three. And I mean, I didn't. I, I think that's a little too far. But 
there's real disagreement among like not just us like navel gazing people outside the baseball industry wondering what they're doing but also people on like on in front offices about hey like what is the value of having a guy who is like one of the best two or three hitters in baseball right now and getting him on your team like right now to try to sign him to an extension some people would say well like no you can just replace that with other stuff and like you shouldn't be willing to give up the amount of prospect capital and future considerations and contract capital it takes to acquire Soto. And some people say like, yeah, you should, he's won Soto. So I think that's, um, right. That's maybe the, that's the crux of a lot of arguments. Like I'm using Soto as a, like anyone with a contract is kind of in this, uh, in this, some people thought he was too low. Some people thought he was too high. If we're looking for people who are like disagreed about based on their talent level, uh, O'Neill Cruz is a is a great one for that, and I, I don't know, man. Like he's been all, that way for the last four years. Yeah, he was all over the place on this list. I I didn't feel confident at all where he ended up, which was thirty eighth. But he could have been twenty fifth. He could have been off the list. He could have been an honorable mention, and I, like, I would have felt kind of okay with all those. It's just like if it works out, it's going to be so good. And if you talk to somebody who thinks it's seventy percent likely to work out then they, they shove him way up the list. And if you talk to somebody who thinks he's 30% likely to work out, he's an honorable mention. So he's like he's really in the eye of the beholder in a way that I don't think any other prospects are. Like he's just, the tools are better than any of their prospects and the risks are bigger. Like he's the, the extreme yes. of both sides. And so yeah. that just leads to really sharp disagreements. Yeah, it's been it's been this way for a while. I think... The the risk that you associate with him is, well, it's twofold. Number one is his approach, but there are other players on this list who have similarly aggressive approaches or who have passed through this list in the past. Javier yeah. Baez, Bo Bichette, Luis Roberts. I think Austin Riley is pretty aggressive. Right. But yeah, Luis Roberts in the top ten. <laughs> right. He's um he's voracious. Like he'll he'll swing at whatever. And so to some degree, the stability in someone like Luis Robert or Jeremy Pena, who swings a lot too, is their defense. And that's that always gives you some margin for error. Luis Robert's going to play plus-plus center field defense as part of all this. So even when he's going through stretches where he's got an OBP closer to 300, and that's not ideal, yeah. he's still bringing that to the table. And then Pena is bringing the defense he does at short to the table. And then to a lesser extent, Bo is at short as well. Jazz is is like this too. But yeah, so O'Neill Cruz, you know, you have to make a visual assessment that this six foot seven guy is going to stay at shortstop. Yeah. Uh, and, and like, it's really, you. nobody has any frame of reference for this. Yeah, it's it's one where people are really undecided and... It's also one where because he's going to be under team control for so long, like where he ends up really matters. If he ends up as a shortstop, he's too low. Like there's that that's just the case. And so I think for more like more than anyone else on the list, what you think of him like defensively and like you said, there's no comps. Uh, how you feel about that just determines his spot a lot. And so he had a ton of variability. Ugh, I think you will enjoy this one. Uh, an anonymous talent evaluator said, Shane Bieber, he's just all right. And, you know, like, I, that's understandable. 
if you look at Shane Bieber pitch sometimes, you say, oh, yeah, like, I don't know, like, would I take him over Max Fried? But then you can also say, like, like I'm much more results driven. I, I really do care about what guys have done in the last year and a half, two years, three years. And Shane Bieber has been one of the best pitchers in baseball. He's either been hurt or one of the best pitchers in baseball, and he's healthy right now. He's healthy. He's lost three and a half ticks from peak in 2020 off yeah. of his fastball. And you're talking to the guy who, if he wasn't my Cy Young pick for this year, he was close to it. Just right. betting on, again, like he and Herman Marquez were my Cy Young picks because they've performed. And if you look at everybody else who's in the top 10 of pitcher war from the last five years or so, they're all like 38-year-old Charlie Morton, Justin Verlander, guys who have been hurt like DeGrom, you know, like or of Burns, the dudes basically. who have mostly been yeah. healthy or performed. It's not crazy to have picked either one of those guys. One of them has had a four-tick dip in velo, and he's performing, and the other guy isn't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Bieber has done a really smart thing, I think. And if you're if you focus too much on the velo, I think you can miss that he's basically just said, all right, well, my slider is better anyway. I'm just going to stop throwing fastballs. And... I don't know how long that'll work, but you don't need it to work a lot longer for him to be really good. Because right, he's, he's just Joe Musgrove then. Right, which is great. And he's great. still under contract for two and a half more years. I would take him over Freed or Brandon Woodruff if I needed to win a game tomorrow. But I think some people wouldn't. And some of the people I talked to wouldn't. And so there there was real disagreement there. That's another like model versus stuff thing. Bieber's stuff is just not as good as Freed's or Woodruff's. I, you can't convince me that it is. I, I've watched it. Like, the breaking stuff is really great, but, like, he has to throw a fastball a decent amount of time because that's how pitching works, and his is just not very good, <laughs> like, relative to the rest of the elite class. He makes it work. I think my favorite, like, confusing ranking of the whole thing is Shohei Otani and Alejandro Kirk right next to each other, and I don't think there are two more different players on this list. Otani is, like, a model, and Alejandro Kirk is, like, if you squished Shohei Otani down by eight inches... More than yeah. eight inches? More than eight inches. Like a foot, maybe? <laughs> I don't know. He's, he's not very tall. Yeah, Kirk is interesting. He's awesome. As the guy who probably talks about long-term body composition and the projection that it has and what it does to the way I think about guys, like I somehow am often the one who's just like, this guy hits. I don't care. <laughs> Stuff in this guy. Yeah. And Kirk was that was that dude for me too. Um, I think Otani's too low on here. I think that he is two players. He's a year and a half of two players, plus the marginal roster spot that you get from having him be two players rolled into one. So it's really like, you know, if we're using him as we're using the Scherzer and Turner trade as a proxy, you know, show he's getting you more than that tomorrow, plus the marginal roster spot, plus all of the Otaniness that he brings to your team. Like, I probably just would have had this guy up with. Manoa through Albies somewhere, but yeah, and some people would say he shouldn't be on the list. Like that—that right. that actually is something that I heard. So yep. I think there's—I I think they're wrong. I think that stars of the like ten best players in baseball variety. Like honestly, I don't think using surplus value is a great way to look at these things anyway. Like it, it's a fine starting. It's a point. variable for sure. It's a fine starting point, and it's a variable. Like it matters, but it doesn't reflect the reality on the ground of how you win baseball games. It does for. Some teams in a more severe way than for other teams. Yeah. And like it, for the Mets, it is less of a big deal. The Kelnick, Edwin Diaz trade, etc., like for the Mets, doesn't look like it stings totally right now, even though at the time it was like, wow, they gave up 
six years of Jared Kelnick for Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the only piece still standing from that deal is like Edwin Diaz looks like an elite closer and that's it. Like everybody else, no one, no one's contributing really at the big league level. Certainly not in the same place that they are or that yeah. they were when the trade was made. And Diaz will be gone in a year. So, or I mean, maybe he'll resign, but you know, he'll be a free agent after this year. So it wasn't like a, it's not like he's going to be there for six more years, but yeah, he's the only player who, uh, who really has amounted to anything yet out of that whole deal. I guess Cano, Cano had some negative value. Yes. Contract aside, just from being like, just from being there. Right. And like keeping McNeil down, like there are all sorts of other weird variables that account for this stuff. But like there are teams like the Mets and the Dodgers who can make a trade like that. You can take Carl Crawford and Adrian Gonzalez's contract, you know, and it doesn't matter to you. And then you have the teams like Cleveland and Tampa Bay who they would never, ever, ever do anything like that. And then you have some of the teams who are maybe would do it at the risk of destabilizing the like San Diego. Right, you know, San Diego, try it for sure. Right. San Diego is the type of team that would do it and it might end up backfiring on them the way some of like the Snell trade feels not great, but the Darvish trade feels good. Like that is that is the expanse of it, you know, in a snapshot is the Snell trade feels not great. The Darvish trade does, but regardless, like the Padres farm system right now is not deep and so it's harder for them to sustain their level of success especially when it comes to pitching well they did a lot of trading depth instead of uh height as it were although if they make a soto deal that's gonna yeah i'm sure abrams and those guys move so here's one for you if you do the um you add up the war and you subtract out the projected cost and you assign some value over the remaining years of team control randy rosarena and shohei otani are about the same in terms of Pretty much everything. Like, actually, Arozarena is projected for more war under team control at a lower cost by any kind of reasonable slicing up of the numbers. You don't think the Rays would trade Randy Arozarena for Shohei Otani tomorrow? Like, of course they would. Of course they would. Its surplus value is just not the right way to think about these things, even if you're the Rays. Like, it's important, but come on, man. Like, of course they would do that trade. I think, yeah, if you're talking about a one-for-one deal but again it's it's really it's a two for one he just becomes their best pitcher right away until tyler glass now comes back maybe but like counting all that you know he's only he's only there for another year counting dan's projections for both sides he's just like he's gonna be worth a lot fewer war even if you give him a bonus for two roster spots like what would you pay to have an extra roster spot i don't know 10 million dollars do you think do you think the Rays would pay the league $10 million to be able to roster 27 no. players instead of 26? Probably not. No. So I just think like the, the framework of just count them up and subtract them out just, just falls short for players where I, I think the big thing is like, and this is another thing that Otani does really well, is that he's like being a lot better than the replacement when your replacement is not zero kind of matters more than, than any of this math would make you think. And Otani is like a really good pitcher and a really good hitter. And getting that kind of upgrade, like he'd upgrade any team's DH except for the Astros, I'd say. And he'd upgrade any team's pitching rotation. Whereas a Rosarena, that's not the case. So kind of that like top end juice, like I guess maybe you could recast into some kind of nonlinear thing where a chance of stardom is worth more. And that that's probably what's going on in terms of how actual trades happen. Like, if you have a chance at being a, an MVP, teams value that a lot because then they can, they can plug you into the lineup every day and not worry about it. 
Do you have any uh, thoughts on the upcoming free agent class and the kind of contract that they would have to get to end up on this list? I feel confident that no one is going to end up on this list next year. It's really tough to sign a free agent deal and, you know, because that's the most that a team wanted to give you and then get better enough that quickly that you'd be on the list next year. So, like, I'm trying to think of an example of where that's happened. People who sign extensions, it happens all the time. But it's kind of difficult to do it in your first year of free agency. Like, Zach Wheeler probably should have been on the list last year because he just, he signed, like, a, you know, top of market, but not the top of the market deal with the Phillies, and he just got much better. He was kind of a, like, a solid number three with the Mets, and he's a solid number one with the Phillies. That kind of thing can definitely happen. But I, I find it hard to believe that anyone who's going to sign a deal this offseason quite makes it there. Like, I also I think Judge is going to get overpaid from a production on the field standpoint and that he'll just make it back for the Yankees because I think he's signing with the Yankees by being Aaron Judge and, like, being one of the most marketable players in baseball. So, like, I don't think he's a, a threat to hit the list. There's not a lot of shockingly young free agents this upcoming offseason, and that's another way where you can make the list, you know? I'm fascinated with this idea of like creating trade assets. So like if you could give Michael Conforto a five-year, $10 million total contract, for sure he's just like on this list, right? Right. Like he's just a, an above average hitter who's getting paid nothing and like he would be a very valuable trade asset. And so there's probably a point where Trey Turner and Carlos Correa and Xander Bogarts and Danzy Swanson – by the way, that's a ridiculous free agent shortstop class again. Yeah. And Tim Anderson's club option, I'm sure, will be exercised. But yeah, no, no that's a great there. group. It is a very good group. I could see, um, yeah, I could totally see that happening. And one thing that could definitely happen, and, you know, there's a lot of like kind of BS around swapping large contracts. Like money always gets eaten. And so would you rather have, you know, $50 million or quote unquote $50 million worth of prospects? Well, I think a lot of teams would not, wouldn't mind paying down their stars contract to juice the return. And so, yeah, you can kind of create, like you said, create trade assets. Mookie Betts is a great example of that, actually. He signed this super weird contract with the Dodgers. It was, as I understand it, both a COVID and tax dodge. So they paid him a bunch of his salary and signing bonus, which meant he could receive it in the state of Tennessee, where he lives, and which uh, very notably does not have an income tax, a state income tax. So that was a good deal for him. And then also because it was payable in signing bonus, it wasn't subject to uh, shortened seasons in 2021 or 2022 because when he signed the extension, it wasn't clear what was going to happen with the next few seasons. So they did kind of that. But as a result, he has $50 million coming from the Dodgers that hasn't been paid yet, but he's going to get every year, but that a team acquiring him wouldn't need to pay because it's just, it already happened. Like the bonus has been agreed to and paid out. It's just payable and 10 increments of $5 million or whatever. So he is a better, like, quote unquote, trade chip to a team that would acquire him right. than he is to the Dodgers. Okay. Like, like, he's cheap. He's artificially cheaper because they've already agreed to structure his deal. Some of this. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of like NBA ish. And you could just do that. Like, the, the Rockies did that by paying down Arnado's deal to get Montero and Gomber back. <laughs> oh, yeah. That deal was actually, like, not bad for them, aside from the fact. Like, the whole optics of it were terrible. What are they doing? Like, signing Arnaud to an extension and then paying him money to leave. Like, that that was not great. But they did, like, their idea of getting two players who are going to be on their major league team pretty soon when this guy left town did work out. And I bet you, if you ask the Rockies, would you prefer to have 
just traded him without paying down the contract or paid down the contract and gotten guys back, they'd prefer what they did. I'm not a huge Montero guy. I am pretty skeptical of him hitting it in the big leagues, but yeah, the I mean, Gomber right away looked good, but the rest of that deal has sort of fallen away. Yeah. Montero, I know that there are people who like him enough to like, you know, think he's a top 100 type of prospect. I actually slid him down <laughs> just watching film of him facing every slider that he's faced at AAA. Not like I watched all of them, but just like enough of them that I'm just like, uh-uh, this is scary. <laughs> There's yeah. no way. It is scary, scary, like, scary. Like he's a good example of someone where you look at the like the numbers and you're like, oh, they're actually kind of good. They're good. They're good. Even if you adjust for elevation and everything. And like even the – like he hits the ball hard. But yeah <laughs> – it doesn't doesn't inspire confidence that he has a forty three percent strikeout rate in his first thirty five plate appearances in the majors. Like, yeah, the guy likes to I'm, swing. I'm sure that there is more publicly available TrackMan data than I've looked at for him, just because all of the Pacific Coast League stuff has been tracked in the way that the like spring training stadium, Florida State League stuff has been in previous years. There's now right. You could probably scrape all that stuff, and I bet you there are people put in the right game codes or whatever. But I've got like you know just a. Looking at synergies at like 35% chase rates and about as many swinging strikes the balls and plays. And it's so many breaking balls, like a lot of them. But uh, all right, so trade deadline's coming. Are there any individual players who you're interested to see what happens or team behavior that you're keen to see what they will end up doing? So let's just leave aside Soto because enough sure. words have been spoken about that and ink spilled and so on and so forth. That will be very interesting no matter what happens. I am very curious what's going to happen with Frankie Montas. I yeah. It's so weird to have a guy where obviously his value to the A's is what they get in return for him in trade. That's been the case since before the start of the season when they tanked the rest of the team. And they kind of held out trying to get a little bit more and he got hurt. So it's just this very interesting thing where they need him to uh, do a little bit more, right? Like, like they needed him to show that he can pitch, but they don't want him to pitch too much. And I think there'll be an interesting dance there where, like, do you think they want to be in a situation where they have to not trade him this deadline and hold him for a while? Probably not, but you could totally imagine that happening. Like, is a team really going to offer what the A's are surely asking for, for Montes, who's a good pitcher, who's not just a rental, when they're like, I don't know, like, maybe he just won't pitch again this year. Maybe maybe he's done and he's going to pitch for me barely over the next year and a half. No, he pitched. He pitched on the twenty first. Oh, like he's back for sure, but he's he's back for what two starts since uh, since being hurt. Sure, yes, like for sure. This is one of those situations where there are scouts there. Yeah, there are scouts in Oakland to see him, and you know all the other pieces that Oakland might. Just because you want like real time. What's this guy's body language like? Is he feeling his shoulder or neck or upper back? Like, what's going on? Do oh, you yeah. want eyes on him every second that he is visible between the lines? And in no the doubt. But presumably if you're a team, you maybe apply a little more discount if you're like, well, I need my scout's opinion of whether, you know, his body language was good enough that I think his neck's not too hurt <laughs> versus like, no, Luis Castillo, I don't need a scout to tell me that. Like, right. I, I can imagine you'd want a little bit of a discount as it were. How much of those Oakland guys go? Obviously Montas, but also I think Loriano might go. I think that's the Loriano uh, I don't think Murphy's going. I don't think Murphy will go either, but for the same reasons that Loriano Loriano's Arb two next year, 
is a free agent after 2025. So that's three and a half years. Yeah, like there are teams who, I don't know, you know, Philly could use an everyday center fielder. Miami has been targeting center field type guys, whether it's Cattell Marte or whoever. Like they've been looking for a long-term answer in center field since I want to say like last deadline. And during the offseason, they were kicking the tires on different stuff. Like I think Miami and Texas are the two teams whose behavior I am most fascinated to see. And then to a lesser extent, Detroit and Kansas City, because I think both of those clubs are like in one door, out the other with some of these players. Like it makes sense for Texas to trade Martin Perez, but also they are not in a full scale knock it down rebuild. They generally want to add to the big league team to like save everyone's job. And Kansas City is in that bucket. And Miami, Miami's got more leash, like they're regime is relatively new like they deserve more time but they are definitely not in knock everything down rebuild mode like they could go either way from the sounds of things they have some star players like they they should be trying to win next year for sure yes i think that they they should be continuing to try to they are building they are not rebuilding Agreed. I think um, I think the Royals should be rebuilding, and if the Royals do some like win now or soon in the future trades, that's to their own detriment. That that's a, like you said, a try to save your job move that I would not support. Like you can't look at that team and say, "Yeah, this is it." Well, then that's going to be interesting because the rumors around the draft were like, "Boy, ownership sure is seems to be involved in stuff that's going on there." All of a sudden, in a different. It like that has hit a different gear. Uh, so that's kind of scary. Well, as we talk, the Tigers are rumoredly willing to trade oh. Tarek Skubal and just about everyone else. What? That's a, yeah. That's, so, that's not who you'd want to trade. No, that's the one guy who's – this is a perfect example of the pitching attrition thing. It's like, all right, Manning, Skubal, Mize. Mize had all kinds of medical yellow flags coming out of Auburn. He had a PRP between – his sophomore and junior year. Everyone knew that. We wrote about it. We for sure weren't the only ones to know and write about that. Yeah. But like, and so then it happened. So now he's having TJ. Manning has just not been very good and then has also been hurt. And Scooble, who was hurt in college and then couldn't throw strikes so badly that he was passed over the first year he was eligible for the draft. He's one of those guys who like threw a bullpen right before the draft. And some of the teams were like, eh, I don't know, a million. And he was like, no, I'm going back <laughs> to school. And then he didn't throw strikes until slowly before the draft. He started to like throw strikes a little bit more, but in the minors was still very wild. Like Scooble is just doing the, he's on the trajectory of a Kershaw or a Scherzer where, boy, this guy's not efficient early on. But it slowly he's gotten better, and now he'll just be dominant pretty soon, I think. Yeah, I'd be all over that if they were really trying to move him. Holy crap. Yeah, I'm surprised by that. I considered yeah. him for the, the trade value list, and I don't know. Like, I think I just decided that teams, if they're really going to sell the farm, they want proven commodities or O'Neill Cruz. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, that that's maybe a mistake. He He could be really good. He has been quite good this year. And he was also quite bad for each of the past two seasons. And so that, I assume there'd be some skepticism there. I don't understand why the the Tigers are going to trade him unless someone's going to blow them away. Because like you said, he could be really great. And it's weird to trade somebody when the uncertainty, like when the fog over them is kind of still high, but you think they're getting better. It'd be like if the Braves decided to trade Austin Riley, because like, I don't know if he's going to keep hitting this well. Well, like, what? (laughs) Don't do that. Oakland and Chicago, the Cubs... 
they're too, as I'm doing the 40-man crunch stuff, where they shouldn't let 40-man timelines dictate the centerpiece for a Contreras deal, the centerpiece for a Montas or Loriano deal, but they sure as heck can't take back like a bunch of 22s because there's already enough that they both have to add, like certainly more so for Chicago than for Oakland, but like it is going to be tough to have, like you will be in danger of having an overage if you take back a slew of guys who are just 2022 rosterable guys. So like the package that they get back has to be tailored in a way where they're not like, they have to be wary of that basically. Cleveland is the one where in the American League, them and then Texas also to an extent, although Texas has guys where it's easier to lop them off the bottom of the 40 man after the year and not feel terrible about it. But Cleveland's roster is just full of all these interesting young players where you start to like think about who they might want to get rid of after the season who comes off the bottom of their 40 man. And there are not easy decisions to make. Some of them it's okay. Like Anthony Castro, he's been off and on rosters before he's got one option here left. Sure. Uh, Anthony goes, same thing. Like he's out of options. He's been off and on rosters to this point. Anyway, makes sense. Right. Totally fine. Cody Morris is an interesting oft injured pitching prospect. Who's older. He's 25 and a half going on 26. He's on their 60 day. He's rehabbing in Arizona right now. I haven't seen him yet. I might see him tonight. It's been four days since he last threw. Like, my fingers are crossed that I see him tonight. Uh, Like, that's a key. How does this guy look coming off of shoulder stuff? Evaluation. But for the most part in Cleveland, it's all these interesting young players Mm -hmm. who you don't want to lop off the bottom of your roster. And a lot of them are shortstops or middle infielders. Where like, it's Gabe Arias and Tyler Freeman and Brian Rocchio and Jose Tena. And they just have a whole other class of these types of guys rolling through like Angel Martinez where, you know, how many of these guys can you feasibly roster of the teams who have an overage? This is not a team with a big budget who can just make a consolidation trade where they package so many of these guys for Juan Soto or whatever. Like they tend not to do that. So it'll be fascinating to see how they go about consolidating this group of really good young prospects who are on their 40 man not necessarily in the big leagues. There's another wave of them coming. They can't roster all of them. How do you solve that problem either now or you know after the season before the roster deadline in November? There's not a clear answer there. Well, let me put a bow on this discussion by bringing it back to the top 50, but with Cleveland and their 40-man situation. So one player who I didn't mention when we were talking about people who were divisive is Andres Jimenez. And he's a great example of what you're talking about, where Cleveland targets kind of breadth and depth in their trade packages. And so they end up with a lot of these like pretty good, but not, you know, top 10 style prospects who play middle infield. Cleveland obviously prioritizes middle infield defenders. Like, I don't know. Have you seen their farm system? Switch hitting middle infield contact oriented. Yeah, he's, um, they have a type and he is their type. And I think you could make an argument that he should be in the top 50 trade value. Like easily. If his power is real, he belongs there. And if his power is not real, I don't think he belongs there. He's more Tommy Edmund if his power is not real. And like, that's a nice player, but uh, it's, eh, I don't know. It doesn't, doesn't super excite me uh, if he's more uh, slap hitting than, you know, 490 slug, which is what he's doing this year. That, that sounds like a lot. You know, his stat cast numbers don't really support it, but I don't know, like stranger things have happened and he is, he is hitting the ball harder and hitting the ball harder more frequently. So there are reasons to think that Cleveland should be in like, 
consolidation and addition mode, like you said, and they never do it. It's it's something that they've never done as a team, but they don't do it. And the other teams tend to be frustrated with their, they don't take situational. So like the Rays, when they traded Strotman and Winder, not Winder, Joe Ryan, uh, Joe Ryan yeah. for Nelly Cruz, it was like, all right, like half a year Nelly Cruz is probably not worth the two guys who might be long-term starting pitchers. But also, like, what are we going to do with – we have so many of these guys. Just do it. Like, you know, we're going for it. Nelly brings a certain yeah. vibe that we want. Like, there are all sorts of other reasons to round up on him and what he's bringing to the table. So let's just do this. And Cleveland does not seem to be the type of team that is willing to do that at all, make a situational adjustment to the way they are doing their calculus. They want to feel like they're winning every trade that they make. And so it takes, like – I don't know, asymmetry of thought. This is part of what makes Washington so interesting to talk about with Soto because Washington is an old school team. And so the way they were thinking about guys and the way some of the the more progressive teams were thinking about guys is probably different in a way that creates asymmetry of thought that might lead to a deal more than if like Juan Soto were a Cleveland Guardian. Right. Yeah, it is. Uh, that is very interesting. I mean, if Juan Soto were a Cleveland Guardian, this, things would be very different in the world. But right, they would probably have already traded him. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. That doesn't really seem like a smart way to behave. And it is funny to me that teams are annoyed by this because it's great. That just means that they're like leaving value on the table and you can you can pick their pockets in the rule five draft. It's awesome. If some team is intent on mismanaging their roster to where they lose people for nothing, like I wouldn't complain too much personally. Like you know, I'd just be like, okay, great, I'm gonna I'm gonna go pick these guys in the rule five. Right. This is this is either if we're talking specifically about Cleveland, let me pull up my thing again, and then we'll and then we'll call it a day here. Uh, oh, look at that! You've bumped me and the forty-man piece out of the, <laughs> the trending articles. Yes, so many trade deadlines. So Cleveland must add Bo Naylor, who's on the top one hundred, Xavion Curry, who is like plug-and-play four-five starter type guy. Angel Martinez, another like switch hitting, well-rounded middle infielder who joins that group of guys we've already mentioned. Nick Michael Logic, who is extreme fastball carry reliever. Andrew Misyashek. <laughs> this is with the market inefficiency. It's hard to pronounce last names. Jeez, they're doing well with it. Yeah. He's another, you know, power reliever in the upper levels. He's older, but he's dominating. And then Ethan Hankins, who is a high-profile 21-year-old pitching prospect who's coming off of TJ. You got to add him because if you don't, someone else will pop him in the Rule 5 and then just put him on the 60-day while he finishes rehab. Great. Uh, so you got to roster him. And then they have, like, a handful of other fringe guys who are, you know, like, they Hunter Gaddis and Joey Cantillo and Peyton Battenfield would just be someone's back-end starter. Yeah, Yeah, they would just be someone's back-end starter or multi-inning reliever or like they are a rebuilding team's rule five pitching guy who's better than the alternative from their system internally. So like they are going to get picked probably. And so like you're picking between letting them be rule five eligible or cutting Anthony Ghost, Kirk McCarty, Ernie Clement, Alex Call, like just sort of DFAing these guys for nothing after the season. Yeah. But at some point, you just have too many guys where you start to, the cut starts to be deep, where it's like, Owen Miller's okay. He's not great if we're playing him at first base every day, but as like a part time first base, second base, bench yeah. bat, like that's pretty good. And, you know, it feels lousy to just DFA that guy or outright him. 
And, you know, so you don't really want to do that. Oscar Gonzalez feels dicey to me because his walk rates are so low, but also he has huge tools and is performing. So you can either let him, like, stay on your roster or you can add Alex Free Planes, who's just a version of that who hasn't performed at the big leagues yet. Uh, You know, it's it's tough. I don't envy their situation, but I expect that they they have to do something. But I said that last year, and then right before the 40-man deadline, they just outrighted, you know... 25% 25% of their 40, man. So Yeah. Allow me to say this in closing about that. If you decide that you need to make a significant move because you're worried that if you don't, you'll have to DFA Anthony Ghost, you should reevaluate your decision-making plans. Because, like, whatever big move it is that you're making, making the right or wrong move matters a lot more than whether or not you DFA Anthony Ghost. So right. I think he's, he's good, but their kingdom is not going to be lost for want of Anthony Ghost next year. If they, if they need to, they'll pick up a pitcher that is very much like him in a like sure. off the scrap heap somewhere but it, it's a real thing like teams really do care about the stuff and if you're trying to minimize spend it matters even more so yeah I, i'm curious to see what they do as well i'm curious to see how they plan on shaping their next team because it could go a lot of ways and it's probably going to involve no shane beaver it'll be interesting i don't think he's getting traded this deadline like they should try to win this year but uh it, it'll be interesting to see how they handle the, the very tricky roster and, and tricky in a like in a way of their own making uh, going forward. So folks read Ben's trade value rankings. The 40 man crunch pieces, both will have run by the time this podcast is published. And then as the trade starts to roll in all of the reaction and analysis at the site, you know, our endeavor is to get that out as quickly as possible as the trades roll through. So we can keep up with the the ones that will happen (laughs) soon after. And I think that, we might have some other cool deadline day content at the site. So folks should be on the lookout for that. And for Ben Clemens, I'm Eric Longenhagen. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for producing. See you guys again soon. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. After you've checked out the Fangraphs shop and looked at getting a membership, You can check out our new styles and our Effectively Wild merch over at BreakingTea.com. This includes some new threads to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Effectively Wild podcast. Finally, if you haven't signed up for the Fangraphs newsletter yet, you are missing out. It is free to your inbox every weekday and is the best way to keep up on all the cool stuff we are doing over here, which is a lot. Thank you for listening, have a good week, and we'll talk to you next time.